Hello everyone and welcome to Death Sentence. This is Eden speaking to you, recording a solo episode on the occasion of 3,000 followers on Twitter. So first of all, like I said on Twitter, let me thank you all for your support, especially those of you who support us on Patreon. We really do appreciate it. This podcast is one of the many things that the three of us do. We lead very packed lives, but we're always always very happy um, to do so, especially when we know that we have an audience. I think I mentioned this a few times on the podcast, perhaps in other solo episodes, but you know, recording podcasts or making any other kind of content is a bit like screaming into the void. And it's very helpful to know that someone is in there with us listening. And we're not just doing this to entertain ourselves. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love talking to Langdon and Gareth, you know, regardless of an audience. But at the end of the day, we are still recording this and publishing it for you to listen to. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for following us, supporting us, whatever you do for the podcast. We very much appreciate it. Now, I won't pretend that I wasn't going to do this episode anyway at some point and that it's some sort of like exclusive reward for the 3,000 followers. But I think we'll past, you know, such machinations and, um, you know, uh, uh, tools of uh, uh, gathering followers and clicks online. So I can be honest with you that I was always going to do this episode because this book captured my heart when I read it. I think it was six months ago, give or take, perhaps a bit more. Uh, but the occasion of the 3,000 followers simply gave me an excuse to to push it up and dedicate some time to it. And so here we are. Uh, today we are going to be discussing a lost, in the sense that it is underrated and underread, masterpiece of 20th century fantasy, and specifically early 20th century fantasy, that is in the days before Mr. Tolkien's indelible impact on the genre. This book, Lud in the Mist, by um, Hope Mirlis. I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. It is quite oddly spelled. M-I-R-R-L-E-E-S. Was published in 1926. Sorry, 19, yeah, 26. I don't know why that sounded bad in my head, but that's the correct date. Um, and it is a fascinating fairy tale slash detective story slash horror novel, sort of, but at its base, very much an English fairy tale, although with a few interesting twists that make it more intriguing, if not to say radical in many ways. It's quite odd that this book, and to be frank, Hope Mirlis herself, has kind of been forgotten by history because on the face of it, she and the book had every card going for them, every attribute that you would assume would help someone secure a career and longevity for their book was at the hands of um, Mirlis. First of all, she was very well connected um, some of her friends include Virginia Woolf and some of her work, especially Paris, a poem, which is a quite well-regarded piece of experimental poetry, was published by Virginia and Leonard Woolf's press. She also 
was friends with and had correspondence with T.S. Eliot, Gertrude Stein, Bertrand Russell, and Ottoline Morel. So, you know, just a few unknown names there. Um, she herself, so <laughs> caveat, I am reading some things into this relationship because of my knowledge of how history covers these relationships. But she was supposedly, well, not supposedly, she had a very close friendship with a very famous classicist, Jane Ellen Harrison. Um, and of course, in history, she's described as a close friend and tutor and collaborator. But they also lived together until Harrison actually died in 1928. They moved in 1913. So given the times, um, bigotry and discrimination against, well, LGBT folks of all kinds and uh, shades of the spectrum, but in many ways, um, lesbianism especially was a concern for, for women especially during those times. Um, it's not, I think, too far-fetched to assume that the relationship was of a deeper nature, let's say, and history has, like it has done many times, um, you know, covered it up or uh, used euphemisms to describe the relationship. Um, regardless, Mirly's published three uh, works of fiction and a bunch of nonfiction and poetry collections. Um, her books are Madeline, One of Love's Genciest, The Counterplot, and then finally, 1926, Blood in the Mist. Mirlis herself um, lived into the 70s, where she, you know, died just of old age. She was quite old at that point. Um, and today we are going to be focusing on Blood in the Mist, as I said. But I want to start with a quote from Madeline, which kind of exposes um, Mirlis. I'm going to say hope from now on because I'm pretty sure I'm mispronouncing her last name and that's simpler. Um, it really captures Hope's approach to not just the book itself but also fiction writing in general and it goes something like this. To turn from time to time upon the action, the fantastic limelight of eternity with a sudden effect of unreality and the hint of a world within a world which is just a fantastic way to describe her method in general and specifically what she accomplishes in um, Blood in the Mist. So let's get the plot details out of the way. Then we will talk about how the book is what I call faintly haunted and faintly weird in a very interesting way. Then we will look at the class aspects of the story and finally argue that to say that it is just a class-based novel misses the other conflicts that Hope um, shines a light on using this story, and that she is basically trying to point out at how life and the world around us are complex and subtle and cannot be understood in simple terms of good versus evil and light versus dark which is incredibly interesting considering the genre in which she operates, which is fantasy, that loves its um, dichotomies. The time in which she wrote, that is, before one of the chief um, promulgators of that dichotomy, that is, Mr. Tolkien, and his um, antecedents kind of popularized, although 
I was hesitating though because I have an episode on on Tolkien's good versus evil and light versus dark also cooking on the back burner. Hint, it's not that simple. Um, but nevertheless, his legacy is definitely one of of the, the dichotomy between um, light versus dark. And she operated before that, which is very interesting, um, and perhaps offers us even a different avenue that European fantasy might have gone down instead of the Tolkien-esque D&D-inflicted sort of stories. Okay? That's our, that's our plan. And then, of course, we'll listen to some music uh, to close us off. Great. So, Blood in the Mist, um, the plot. So, the plot goes like this. There is um, a capital city called Blood in the Mist. Is it evoking London with the name, perhaps? Mostly just invoking, you know, Englishness. Kind of that, like, old-timey um, bourgeois conception of the city, right? Like, imagine... Well, I'm going to give you UK examples. I don't know if you've ever been to those places, but places like Chester, like the quintessential, not a village, bigger than a town, but not like a metropolitan, right? So the quintessential walled English city of the 17th and 18th and to an extent 19th century before industrialization destroys all of those. Um, but that's kind of the vibe that London Mist is supposed to channel. And this is the capital city of a small country called Dorimer, and most importantly, especially for our last segment, is that the city lies on the crux of two rivers, the Dapple and the Dal. Now, the Dal is the largest, um, the larger of these. It's very described as slow and lethargic and very calm. And the Dapple is a brook that flows into the Dal. But the Dapple also has its origins beyond the region called the debatable hills, which is on the, it's kind of like a hinterland or a borderland between ferry and Lud in the Mist. And debatable hills are debatable because things start to go weird there. So through the waters of the Dapple, um, ferry and magic and so on are all siphoned into Lud in the Mist, right? Because that water is then used to um, run their trade ships, but also, and maybe more importantly, water their gardens and their plantations, their vegetables and their fruit and their animals and so on, all drink from this water that has just a bit of ferry in it. Of course, like with all traces and trace amounts, the people of Lud in the Mist would like to deny these influences. After their um, feudal ruler, Duke Aubrey, who was, of course, um, sadistic and a bit of a, a bit of a, even a sociopath that laughed while he um, massacred people. He was deposed um, in in an uprising by the burghers of the of the city of the burg, right? Which again calls to mind that classic English um, Saxon based because burg is a Saxon word. Um, so they all rose up and deposed the duke, and of course with him the partaking in fairy and in magic was outlawed, right? So the feudal order is tied into the occult and the magical and the old and the traditional, where the royals would, or the monarchs or the feudal lords would feast on fairy fruit, which is, think about like an overripe peach, 
That's mostly how it's described, you know, full of colors and tastes and flavors and so on. But again, with the metaphorical space of um, rot, you know, rot is sweet, rot is cloying, rot is gluttonous, it is overflowing, it is abundance. And of course, the burgers seek to control that abundance and outlaw it because it, of course, uh, calls into question their entire rule. The rule of excess and of abundance is the rule of the feudal lord, at least in the English imagination and in the Western European imagination in general. I think about the legacy of Louis the Sixteenth, right, um, or Louis the Fourteenth, even the opulence of the court, the um, basking in royal authority and in royal might and in royal funds, right. So this is the the classic tie between. Um, the old and the sinful, the excessive and the new and the modern with restraint and control and um, measure, temperance, right? So that's the background. The actual events follow Nathaniel Chanticleer, yes, that's his name, who is the um, seneschal and the mayor of Laden the Mist, the peak of respectable society, right? All he does all day is have these um, parties with his friends where, interestingly enough, they partake of all sorts of concoctions and cocktails made out of flowers and fruit. Why is that interesting? Because, again, it shows us that even them have that connection to nature and to that excess and abundance of a fruit garden, lots of the descriptions there describe them as surrounded by fruit, although not fairy fruit, of course, um, and by spices, um, lots of columbine and rosemary and thistle and sage and so on. So even them, you know, they have their conditioned and socially acceptable means to imbibe them, unlike the feudal lords that simply, you know, went crazy and lost themselves in the, in the sauce, as they say. Um, they have their controlled ways, but they still consume something of the wildness that runs inside the city and outside of it. So this Nathaniel, um, when he was a child, he was visited slash haunted by some sort of fairy that, interestingly enough, played a note, the note, capital N in the book, that has continued to haunt him for the rest of his days. That note was so awful, so jarring, so abrasive and sinister that he basically, well, he's repressed it, but he's lived in fear of that note. And of course, the note returns. Um, strange things start to happen to his son. And at the end of the day, he, he starts to investigate the mysteries at the base of Lud in the Mist's connection with Fairy and how they're carefully ruled planned and controlled society is actually boiling from within with corruption as he sees it from ferry and from the lands beyond the debatable hills. The city itself comes under a haunting, which is, by the way, spoilers, later revealed to be centered around Endymion Lear. Yes, the book is not very subtle or shy with its naming conventions or metaphors. Um, of course, Endymion being a name from Greek mythology that immediately calls to mind enchantment and hypnosis and dream and fairy and visitations and so on. Um, and this 
and Dimion is a wise man, a doctor, um, a knowledgeable person that turns out to be a fairy or a collaborator with fairy. It kind of walks the line between those two, but it also involves a murder mystery. So far, that was the recap, right? Stuff that happens um, in the book that we need to know in order to discuss. The prose itself, before we move on to analysis of the actual topics, is really quite interesting because it conveys in a very um, clever way the faint line of horror that runs beneath the events of the story. It does a really good job of blending the mundane, so to speak, goings-on of Blood in the Mist and how things are subtly wrong. So think about the first 30 minutes of a Jordan Peele movie, right? Things are not quite right, but you can't really put your finger on it. Some people speak too loudly or their expressions are not really what you would expect or parts of a house, are they don't work as logically as you would expect. But there's no reveal. The denouement has not happened yet. There's no villain. And actually, in other Mist, the denouement happens extremely late. Like, when everything is solved, it's basically near the end of the book. And throughout it, there's this, like, what's going on? Are they, is this their imagination? Is something really happening? If something is happening, how bad is it? Are these people really fairies? Or are they just weird people? And it really does a good job of, you know, driving home the confusion and the fear of the characters in the story, right? Because that's how the characters feel as well, right? They feel conflicted, they feel confused, they're not sure what's happening, the world that they know is being invaded by something foreign, or worse than that, they're discovering that what was familiar was always foreign, and it really does a good job of delivering that. So when I said it's not subtle, I meant it's not subtle, but it's plot points and some of its metaphors that kind of foreshadow the events of the book but it is subtle in its tone its world choice and just the overall atmosphere that um it really very effortlessly managed to manages to create there's no like purple prose or flowing sentences or stuff like that it's very commonly written but in the best way possible right just focuses on on the plot and on setting the stage and on selling you on this mercurial sort of um, existence that these people find themselves in. Which leads me to the idea of this novel as a class novel. So, on the one hand, it is undoubtedly a class novel, right? Like, the words, a class asserts itself, is literally used word by word in the book when describing the uprising of the burgers and um, hope describes how that comes to pass, like how the um, consciousness starts to realize itself as a class consciousness, how they start to understand their role in the order of things, how they begin to understand that they have the power, how their culture begins to reflect that, and eventually how they rise up to um, claim what they see as their rightful place inside of society, right? And the figure of Duke Aubrey consistently and constantly haunts, in parallel to the fairies, the uh, people of Blood in the Mist, right? The threat of feudalism, the threat of control, the threat of, and this is very important, illogical control, right? If you think back to 
the 17th and 18th century and the things that people like um, the Levellers and other parliamentary forces in, in uh, 17th century England around the civil wars. If you think about writings around the French Revolution, not just from Enlightenment figures like Rousseau and Voltaire, but also the actual revolutionaries that ended up doing the revolution, um, the idea of the ancien regime, the old rule, as illogical, immoral, untempered, which is the same thing, right? The illogical mind revels in abundance and in gluttony and in excess, is constantly um, contrasted with the tempered, social, polite, restrained, and political figure especially of the revolutionary man, but also of the revolutionary woman. There's different ways in which these are controlled, which are, by the way, explored by hope in this book. There's a whole plot around a, a, a girl's school and the dances that they do and how fairies arrive at that dance, one of the best scenes in the book, and suddenly teach the girls, the young women, not to dance square dances, but to dance folk dances and hope does a really good job of describing them blush and get out of the breath and whirl around in this whirlwind of of days and happiness and pleasure and i'm not sure i i need to reread that passage but i also think that she meant it to have some uh sexual innuendo as well right uh sort of in her physical descriptions you know she gets close to describing an orgasm right uh, so maybe she's also hinting at um you know, sexual liberation of women and, and the idea that, um, you know, a proper woman has sex for reproduction, right? Not, not to enjoy it. Enjoying sex is an excess. is a sign of illogical um, intemperate minds in, in the eyes of <laughs> the 17th and 18th and 19th century authors, not, not in mine, of course. Um, and, and by the way, it can't be stressed enough how much it also went into the 20th century. Like there's a reason that the 60s and the hippie, hippie movement placed emphasis on that because it was very much still a thing. And I don't think I need to point it out. It's a cliche by now, right? Like the jilted wife that um, longs for something else but cannot be, cannot uh, uh, achieve it because she's repressed by the Puritan society as a trope that's been used in TV shows and sitcoms and movies and what have you over the past, uh, I would say, 30 or 40 years following the sexual liberation or the cultural sexual liberation for specific parts of our society that occurred in the 80s. Anyway, rolling all, all of that back, um, that class element, that contradiction, that contrast between the settled bourgeoisie and the wild feudal order is, is constantly hammered home. It plays in the culmination of the book in the institutions that are brought to bear in the form of judges that still maintain some sort of feudal privilege um, from the previous order, in the character of Endymion Lear, in the way that fairy and the corruption that fairy offers the denizens of Vlad in the Mist is not just a mental or a magical one, it's a moral one. It makes them wild and intemperate and happy and boisterous and therefore evil and bad and um, false and lying, right? Um, the truth is settled and logical and ordered and the lie is wild and infinite and excessive. So these elements are constantly being played 
um, in the story and also appear in the dynamics between the characters. For example, one of the main characters, Luke, is a page. Um, a page for Nathaniel that gets sent to check up on his son after that son is sent to a town um, on the outskirts of the Debatable Hills, so not actually inside the Debatable Hills, but on the border of ordered society. Um, and much of the plot, and basically the solution for the murder mystery, and most of the plot lies in that town, a town of um, you know, farmers and butchers and um, harvest and seasonality and so on, explicitly contrasted with Lud itself. And, and therein is why I don't think this is just a class novel. Because the contrast between the ruling class and the working class, which is constant, by the way, um, and Dimion Lear as a doctor is depicted as lesser. The bourgeoisie think of him as lesser. Luke is basically a servant. And even though he is chivalrous and loyal and obedient and brave, by the way, Luke is my favorite character. He also gets lost in fairy, which I think is interesting. And one of the best scenes in the book, the descriptions there are marvelous. Um, he is constantly being talked down to and ordered around by Nathaniel with very little um, in thanks or remuneration until, of course, Luke loses himself and then he's a hero and a savior and blah, 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 and all that stuff. Um, well, the, the teacher at the dance school, the help, um, is rife with Ferry. Ferry gets in through the cooks and the fishermen and the boatswains and the helpers to the teachers and, you know, uh, the stevedores and stuff like that, um, showing again the way that the bourgeoisie considered these classes to be uncontrolled and uh, uh, areas and sites of chaos to their rule. So all of that is there. But then Hope introduces other contrasts. For example, the contrast between the countryside and the city. Now this contrast is a very problematic one because modern history very much is in love with it. I, I would go one step further and say that it's addicted to it. You can find it in culture as well. Um, think about Downton Abbey, but also more recently, The Serpent of Essex. Um, and then even before that, Tolkien has it, of course, The Shire and Gondor and the contrast between them and many other works, D&D &D for sure. Um, but also, quote unquote, proper academic history has very much made a big deal between the divide between the village and the city, the farm and the trader, the um, noble and the um, self, and so on and so forth. But over the last 30 and 40 years, thanks to some new research upending some of the suppositions of this kind of perspective, we have kind of um, started to see that border fade out a bit or at least become more fuzzy. That's the word I was looking for. We are starting to understand the interplay between the center and the periphery, a mental model which doesn't really make sense. Even if you think about today's world, right? Like a good example is American cities, but the sprawling ones like LA or Austin or Atlanta, right? Well, the line between county and city is very ill-defined. I mean, sure, there's a line on the map, but when you go to the territory, 
<clears throat> that should trigger some of you uh, into thinking about Baudrillard and Deleuze, of course, and Derrida. Um, if you go to the actual territory, you'll find no such divide, or at least the divide will be way more complicated because stuff like commutes, how food is grown and how it's shipped into cities and from where it's shipped, tourism, uh, scholarly study, just relationships that cross borders, methods of movement like trains and bicycles and buses and what have you, all make those lines not nearly as clearly delineated as our mental models would have them be. And that's also true historically. The city, the burg, was not just dependent on the outskirt or the periphery or the village or the countryside. It wasn't just dependent on it in the way that we think about it in a Hegelian sense, right, where the master is dependent on the slave and actually the peasants control the burgers because they make their food. There was also an exchange of ideas, culture, language, tradition, ritual, and many, many, many more. So, for example, we see the proliferation of village traditions infiltrate city Christianity in the 17th century in England. Specifically, I wrote like 75% of a thesis on the English Civil War, so that's why I'm focusing on that, but it's also true for 14th century France or anywhere else you'd like. You see things that are supposedly village being practiced in a city and vice versa. You read what people write and they don't think about those things as divided as we do. They don't know where London ends and its surrounding towns begin. They don't know who has authority over the countryside and why they should have authority over the countryside and not a city that's there. It's mercurial. It is shifting. And that's exactly what hope shows us in the book. By first in the plot itself, having characters move from place to place and carry their ideas and bigotries and suppositions outside and figure out why they don't work and learn from the places they go to and then return to, bringing those things back. But also in the way that those things stay separate at the insistence of the characters. Now, they need to insist on it because it doesn't happen naturally. There is no divide between fairy and Lud between the town and the city. If there was a divide, you wouldn't need laws. You wouldn't need the mayor and the judge and the law book to insist that jurisdiction ends or begins somewhere if it was clear to everyone. But it's not clear to everyone. If the burgs don't try to control it, then the ordered version of the world simply falls apart. These delineations in geography, in reality and imagination don't stick unless you funnel an immense amount of social, cultural, and material resources into maintaining them. Sounds familiar? That's right. It's true for capitalism as well and capitalist realism. If capitalism was the fact, the natural fact that capitalists would have us believe, then there wouldn't be a need for propaganda and education and military and police to enforce that fiction because it is a fiction. If it wasn't, then it would be evident. No one needs to enforce the fact that the sky is blue, because it is a fact that does not require enforcing, merely discovery. So it's not just the countryside and the city. Of course, like I said, the real and the imaginary start to blur in Hope's writing, the delineations between male and female and man and woman, which is exceptionally interesting for a book of its time. 
the delineations between poor and rich. There's a very good dialogue in there between craftsmen and poor sections of society with the rich folk and how they see it. their situation as transient. That is, one day they might become the rulers. Maybe they'll do their own revolution. There is a threat of a popular revolution on the horizon in the book. And then the burghers will be the poor and they'll be the rich. And what exactly did we learn from Duke Aubrey's downfall that rulers can be made to fall and so on. So all of these lines begin to blur and it's way beyond class or rather it shows us how class, gender, race to an extent because fairies are a different race, right? But still, this is a white woman writing in the 20s so maybe that's a blind spot that she had that's not really mentioned in the book. Ways of life, economical modes and so on they all blur and mingle and um, lose their definition, creating a very complex world, much like our own. Now, the final metaphor that supports what I'm trying to say and get across to you in Hope's book is that metaphor that we opened with of the rivers, right? The doll, the main river, the normal river, fast, uh, sorry, slow and broad and economical, takes trade ships and so on, is mundane existence, material existence, right? It is moved by trends and laws and periods and long um, mandates and long effects. But the dapple that mingles with it is fast and unruly, and uncontainable, and it always filters in to the main river, which is hope trying to tell us a few things. One, th some things are outside of your control. No matter how much you try to create an ordered and logical world, you simply cannot. The dapple will always flow into your doll. And the world is much messier and much more subtle and um, spectral than you might like to admit. Second, this is also true for your life. Nathaniel's life is the picture of stability, routine. He has everything planned out. He knows how things are going to go from now until the day he dies. And Hope says, that's kind of sad, especially in how Nathaniel ends the story, and I won't spoil it, and the legacy that he sees himself leaving to his children and to the city that he, he loves. He really does love Lud. There's a kind of condemnation from a person who lived a very um, radical and different sort of lifestyle. There's a condemnation of the mundane, the day-to-day, -day, the obvious, right? The um, filled with inertia. There's a call to be more like the devil. You need a doll, you need the stability, but you also need wildness and the unexpected in your life. And finally, of course, because this is a fairy tale, this is also in defense of magic and in defense of fantasy, in defense of, as um, Hope said and we read in the beginning, the fantastic limelight of eternity with a sudden effect of unreality and the hint of a world within a world. Hope would like us to see that as a method not just for writing books, but for examining our own lives and what we like about them and what we don't like about them, what we'd like to change with the fantastic limelight of eternity, right? The idea that 
magic exists and the world is more than bills and bottom lines and order forms and so on and so forth and bus lines and routine and time schedules and so on when we look outside and for those of you who have heard my recordings and read my writings you know how much this idea is important to me that the tree outside is, is not just a tree it's not just the parts that the biological parts that make it up it's also magical it's a world in its own it is an instance of eternity it feeds so much life and sings so many songs and speaks in so many languages and not just the tree it doesn't even have to be natural things man-made machines as well like the complexity of an apartment block right of, of the manifold stories that take place in it the different machines that were in it the different interactions that happen on it on, on, on a daily on a, on a second basis right seconds right like minutes and seconds not just days is all something that hope is trying to draw our attention to right the eternal the magical the fantastical the wondrous within our own rational mundane daily routines and lives and i think it's one of the most subtle attempts to do so because many have tried to do this um, some of them more subtle and some of them less subtle for example the foreword of course well written on this on this book or on the edition of, of the book that i have is by neil gaiman uh, who hails this as one of the best and most forgotten novels of the 20th century and he's right and he's another person who has tried with some success in some places and less success in others in my eyes to draw our attention to the existing magic in the world of course others like of course you know i'm going to say also Le Guin, but also more recently if you think about other authors that i've mentioned on the cast kid johnson and who we've done a solo episode on and sophia samatar and others this tradition of literature trying to open us to the inherent magic and fantasy and wonder that is extant around us, no matter how much we try to shut it out and be rational. And, and the question whether it really exists is exactly to miss the point. It doesn't matter if magic is actually real, you can actually levitate or read the future or summon objects. What matters is the perspectives and modes of relation, there's a word for you, there's a term for you, should ring some bells, the modes of relation that you use to experience the world. And Hope is, with this book, with that in the mist, she's grabbing you by the, by the jacket and shaking you and saying, it's not as simple, it's not that simple, it's not that binary, it's not that clearly delineated, it is complex and subtle. The dapple is flowing into the doll, but she does it extremely subtly, right? She nudges you from the corner of her literature, from the corner of her perspective, which is, a, uh, I think, a true testament to her mastery and her art. Um, and this is really such a forgotten book for absolutely no reason, because it's fantastic. It's fantastic if you're a child. It's fantastic if you're an adult. It's, it's just a brilliant exploration of all of these themes and ideas that I just presented. And that's Lot in the Mist. I truly implore you to read this book. It's not an easy read. The style is takes some getting used to and can be bizarre and uneven in places. But overall, it is a stroke of genius that I, I think was done in a great crime um, of being forgotten. And hopefully we can do a little with our corner of the internet.
to change that. So let's listen to some music. I actually don't remember if we've played these guys on the cast before. I don't think so, although I think Langdon, um, at least I know, listens to them. These guys are Go Go Penguin. These guys are one of the banner holders of the kind of fusion between jazz, post-rock, and mathier elements of rock, creating this incredibly warm but very energetic version of jazz fusion. They take elements from even genres like drum and bass and jungle to create more immediacy and urgency in their percussion. And very famously, their pianist manipulates piano strings, like he duct tapes some of them, so that he has a more percussive feel to some of the notes, which leads to the unique sound of Go Go Penguin. Like, after you listen to these guys for a while, someone can just play you a track by Go Go Penguin, and you go like, oh, this is Go Go, Go Penguin, right? Because that percussive sound is very, very unique. Of course, this is instrumental music, and I chose something a little... I wouldn't say relaxing because it is quite an upbeat sort of style, um, especially the track that I'm going to be playing. But it is warmer than a lot of what we usually play on um, the podcast. Interestingly enough, this style has a lot of overlap with metal listeners, perhaps because of its percussiveness or because of the appreciation of the complexity of the compositions and how they execute them. But regardless... um, I know a lot of metalheads that very much um, appreciate what the Gogon Penguin are doing. We're going to be playing the track Wave Decay from their most recent EP, which dropped, I think, this month or, or last month, called Between Two Waves. Of course, an allusion to the plague, and this is a plague album, um, but in a diff- very different way than you might imagine. Thank you for listening again. Seriously, we really do appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. A bit uh, more toned down, I would hope. Um, Blood in the Mist by Hope Mirlis. I cannot recommend it enough. And this is Wave Decay by Coco Penguin. Enjoy. Thank you. Bye-bye.